Hey, my name is Brett Ferguson, and I'm one of the members here at Grace Point. Um, Mike is in Greece, and I um, on a mission trip uh, with the team, and I know what it's like when you get here and the senior pastor's not here, and you're like, man, I did my hair and everything, and uh, it's okay. Your attendance has been noted, and will be forwarded on to the proper authorities. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 17. Um, you guys are much braver than the first service. At the first service, every single person here sat as close to the doors as humanly possible. Uh, when you have your kids in here, kids, we're glad you're here today. I'm going to try to engage you guys throughout as we go because I think there's application for you today. Um, but just know that your parents confirmed with me earlier that if you are good during service, they will Fortnite dance for you when you get home. Um, We've been in a series of messages for the last couple of months called Pursuits, Living a Life That Gives Life. And we've been looking through, Mike's really been looking through, the Gospel of John to see the interactions that Jesus had with the people around him and to see how Jesus lived, sent, and engaged with these people and how we can do the same thing. Now, I'm a pastor's son, so I know that most of you, when you leave here, if you see Mike in the foyer, you're like, oh, hey, pastor, that was really good talk today, yada, yada. Last week, I went up to Mike, and I was like, listen, I'm kind of done with this, okay? (laughs) Because this series has been extremely convicting for me personally, like kind of too close to my business. Um, This has been completely binary. Like, either you are in your life every day actively and intentionally and either I am, it's us, right? Either we are actively and intentionally looking for ways to show and share G- the love of Jesus, or we're not. And unfortunately for me at my house, there's been a lot more not than there has been are. And so that's been painful. And I told Mike, like, let's move on to something else, right? Like, we can just do that. And there's been a lot of discussions at my house about this with Rachel and I of, hey, are we, how do we do this? It's been a hard challenge. So I'm kind of, the good news is after today, we can move on maybe to something a little bit easier for some of us, right? The bad news is we do have to go through through today one last time of talking about living scent. But I think what we're going to see today, we're going to open up to the gospel of John chapter 17. We're going to look at a prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples. And what we're going to see is five really simple things that will enable you and I to live scent better. If these five things are true, if these five things are happening in your life and my life, then we are going to be more enabled to live sent the way that we want to and the way that Jesus sends us out. But my first conclusion from this whole series is a real simple one. And probably the weight of this has been on me more recently than I've ever really thought about in my life. And that is, you know, we live sent because Jesus sent us. And I kind of worry that you throw a hashtag in front of it and we say it every week and we start to think that like living scent became some like marketing motto that the marketing department of the church came up with like in one, one of their little meetings or that maybe this just became like Mike's little tagline or this is just how we know that church service is over when somebody says these words. And I just want to step back and, and just hope that over the last few weeks you've seen the weight of this, that the reason we live, live scent isn't because Mike sends us. It's not because Greg point sends us. It's not because that's the little hashtag for our church because Instagram told you to. We live sent because Jesus himself sends us. 
And he sends us over and over and over in the Gospel of John. And the very last time he says that he's about to, it's at the end of John, in John chapter 20, he's about to leave his disciples and go back to be with the Father after he has rose from the dead. And he says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. I've, I've kind of bolded the word as. I, there's, there's an entire sermon someone could teach on that one word in this one verse. And I'm going to give you like a mini version of that inside of another sermon. And that is this. Jesus sends us the same way that God sent him. Well, how did God send him? First of all, God sent Jesus with authority that only God has. Like when God tells you to go, it doesn't get any more serious than that. The weight of that authority is there. So Jesus sends us the same way. The way God the Father told me to go, I'm telling you to go. But then he he didn't just send us with the same authority. He sends us with the same message, the same mission. And that is the weight of saving the world needs to be on us a little bit. That God sent Jesus with a mission, and the the mission was to take the most important message to every single person. And so, with the authority that only God can give, and with the mission that is the most important mission that anyone's ever done, that's how God sent Jesus, and that's how Jesus sends us. We live sent because Jesus told us. Jesus sent us. And what we're going to see in these next few moments is we're going to see in John chapter 17, Jesus actually prays for you and for me. And when we unpack his prayer, we're going to see what he prays for. What he prays would be true of our life so that we can live sent. Now, let me just set the context here. This is at the end of Jesus' life. He has just had the Last Supper with his disciples. They are walking down a road to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so as they are walking, he prays. This is like the original prayer walk. And all his disciples can hear the prayer that he is praying. And he's praying mainly for them as they go. And we're going to read it together. Now, i got to give you a warning, okay? This is the longest prayer in the Bible. And so I guess, hey, all the kids are in here. Let's just read a really long and confusing prayer together. It makes perfect sense to do that this week, right? It is a little confusing. There's no way around this. We need to read it all together, okay? So can everybody look at me? Can I, can I get like three minutes of undivided attention for you to read along with me to make it through this prayer? And then at the end of this, we're going to unpack like five simple things for it, okay? Are right, you ready? Here we go. John 17. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh... To all whom you have given him, that he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. I've manifested, or I have shown your name to the men that you gave me out of the world. He's talking about his disciples. The people you gave me out of the world, I have shown them who you are. Verse 7. Now they have come to know everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I've given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I don't ask on behalf of the world, but on those whom you've given me. So this is a prayer for people who are following him. I don't ask on behalf of everybody in the world, 
But on these people who are following me, verse 9, I ask on their behalf, verse 10, all things are mine, are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you gave, which you had given me. I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas. I've protected these people. I've called them out, and I've kept them with me from the beginning until now. I'm going to keep them with me, with the exception of Judas. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me in the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone... Look at this. I'm not asking just for these 11 guys that are with me, but also for all who believe in me through their word. That's us, right? The disciples left. They proclaim the gospel. Thousands of years go by. Disciples continuing to proclaim the gospel, and it shows up in Bentonville, Arkansas on Sunday morning, and that's us, and we're included in this prayer. Verse 21 that they may also be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be one in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you've given me, I've also given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may may know that you sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you've given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these that you have sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Sounds pretty much just like your normal Monday morning prayer before you go to work, right? Hey, look, Jesus didn't speak English, okay? So we're going to unpack all the grammar of the Hebrew here. We're just going to kind of distill this down to like five simple things. Can we do that together? And what Jesus is really praying, if you notice in that, in that prayer, the word sent is said over and over. You sent me, I'm sending them. You sent me, I'm sending them. We're, we're sending, and he's praying for things to be true. And we're going to find kind of five enablers that will help us live sent. And the first one is a big one. We will live sent when we are united. We will live sent when we are united. If you were to kind of distill out of this thing one theme that really comes to the top over and over and over again, Jesus is praying that his disciples would live united together. Multiple times in the passage he says it. John chapter 17, verse 11. He prays that we would be one even as Jesus and God the Father are one. He also goes on to pray that we would be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, so that they also may be one in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. We're going to come back to that in a minute. 
But let me just start with this, that Jesus and God the Father were the most united people who have ever lived on planet Earth, who have ever walked. Jesus described it this way in in John earlier, John chapter 10. Jesus said simply, I and the Father are one. You see me, you see the Father. When I speak, the Father speaks. We're so close together that to see one of us is to see both of us. That's how united they are. And so what Jesus, again, to go back to the word as, what Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 11, he prays that his disciples would be one even as, just as, in the same way that God the Father are one. So here's the problem for us, okay? I think we don't understand what it means to be united as one, right? So in simple terms, I think it means two things. Number one, that we live together with intimacy and with a shared purpose. To be united means we live together with intimacy and a shared purpose. The problem is we live inside of a culture that is the most disunified culture that we have seen in this country in a really, really long time. And we are divided among political, racial, socioeconomic. And while it felt like when I was younger, when it felt like we were getting closer and closer and closer to being a more united country, now it feels like we're going backwards and backwards and backwards. And you go, we're more divided than ever. And in the middle of that culture, sometimes I think we settle for something that we think is united that's not really united. We settle for less than intimacy, less than shared purpose. We settle for things like coming to a church and showing up for an hour on Sunday and being kind and friendly to the people around us and maybe not causing trouble, never complaining. Most of you would never go tell the pastor a sermon wasn't very good. And we think, hey, I'm united. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about is intimacy and shared purpose. Let's not dumb unitedness down to something less than that. Can we just give some, can I give like, I think some real talk for a minute, just honest talk? Thank you. (laughs) You are not living united when your interaction with other believers can be summarized by an hour or an hour and a half, three or four weeks uh, out of the month. That's not being united. And I know that that's how a lot of us interact with faith. And in my past, that's how Rachel and I have done church life sometimes. It's like, hey, we went, we were there, we saw the people, we did the stuff. This is so much deeper than that. This is intimacy with other people. This is a shared purpose and a shared mission with other people. The early church knew this so much better than we do. In the book of Acts, in chapter 2, it says about the early church that they were so united. They lived with such intimacy. They lived with such um, devotion to a primary cause together that they shared everything they had. They actually sold their own possessions to help other people It says that every day they were going from one person's house to another, sharing meals together. And and we kind of throw around this idea of like, hey, just doing life together. This was more than just doing life together. This was a shared mission together. And we've fallen and we've settled for so much less than that. And you cannot live sent unless you are living in intimacy and shared mission with other people. And that's more than an hour on Sunday morning. Just like Mike can't say that. Maybe I can say that. 
Martin Luther King Jr. and Letter to Birmingham Jail, my favorite writing that uh, Martin Luther King wrote or any of his speeches, he understood what the early church was like and listen to how he described the early church. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace or outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought to end such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it's an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanctioning of things as they are. I wonder if maybe one of the reasons the modern church is ineffectual and unclear is because we don't really understand what it's like to live united with one another. And can't you see, I mean, in John, this is so powerful when in verse 21, Jesus says that if we follow him and we live together, that the world will believe that he sent us. Do you see the picture here? A group of people from all racial, gender, socioeconomic, diverse backgrounds living together in intimacy and shared mission. Do you think that would stand out a little bit? You think that the world would look at people who live like that and say something like, what they believe might be true because that's pretty strong. And I want to go outside of the lane for one second here and just say something to the people of color who choose to come to church here. And that is thank you. Thank you for making our church look more like heaven because that's the end of this for all of us, right? That we spend eternity with people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, every color, every socioeconomic status together for eternity living united. And when people of color choose to come into this church, they're helping make our church look more like heaven today. And I just want to say that I know that that's not easy for you to come to a church where, where people look different than you. But thank you, and we need you here. We need you leading small groups, leading from this stage, leading in serving our kids, because that is what the gospel is about. It's about people coming together, no matter where they come from, with intimacy and a shared mission. And let's not let race become a political issue, when from the beginning of time until now, it's always been a spiritual issue, and there's zero room for it in the house of God and in the family of God. We live together. And I also want to say, at Grace Point, the primary way that we live together is in a small group, in our communitas group. And if you are going like, hey, living united sounds great. I don't know how to do that because the guy who sits next to me every week changes, 
right? Then you need to find a smaller group of people, a more intimate group of people that you can connect with and you can live together with intimacy and shared mission. That's what a community house group is for. And if you're not in one and you want to live more united, I would say start there. So here's your assignment for the week. Every, every one of these five points, I'm going to give you one action step. Kids, you can do this too. But here's what I want you to do. This week, I want you to find one person. And I want you to say to them something like this. I want more from our relationship. I want more from our relationship than talking about the Razorbacks or the Broncos. Or I want more from our relationship than talking about work. I want more from our relationship than comparing, you know, what's happening in, with your kids' lives and my kids' lives. I want more from our relationship. I want to live more united. Intimacy and shared mission with you. Kids, I encourage you. How many kids have one friend? At least one friend? Everybody's got a friend, right? Find one of your friends this week, kids, and just ask them, how can I be a better friend? How can I be a better friend to you? So Jesus is praying for us. He's praying that we would live sent. The first kind of enabler of living sent in your life is you will not live sent unless you are living united in intimacy and shared mission with other people. The second thing is this. You will not live sent unless you live protected. You will not live sent unless you live protected. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. But I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Protect them from the evil one. Now, here's the deal. I don't think that Jesus is actually praying for the disciples' physical protection. Because... 10 of the 11 people who are hearing this prayer will go on to face a martyr's death. They will be speared. They will be burned at the stake. They will be crucified upside down. They will take the gospel to dark corners of the world. And almost all of them will be killed, except for the author, John, who will go on to live a very long life. And as an 86-year-old man, he will begin to write the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He lives a natural life. But all the rest of them will actually be killed for their faith. I, I don't believe that Jesus is primarily worried with their physical safety. I think Jesus is primarily concerned about their soul. And Jesus knew what Peter would soon learn in his life and what Peter would tell us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, when he would say, be sober of spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion and he is looking for someone to devour. Now listen, we're not a church that finds Satan and blames Satan for everything that happens in this world. That's kind of not in our DNA, right? But we do believe that he's real and that he's active and that he's doing things. And we do believe that what Satan hates more than anything is people who are living sent in this world. And it's amazing to me how little Satan has to do in my life to keep me from living sent. It's kind of like those times in life where I decide like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat like really clean. And so we will be intentional about when we go to the grocery store, like we're only going to buy this kind of food. We're only going to do this, right? And for a couple of days, I, I'm, I crush it, kill it. And then on Wednesday, somebody brings donuts to the office. 
And they're like the most pathetic, weak, stale donuts ever. And I'm like, oh, I just got to have one. I don't want to feel bad. That's all it takes. And I'm off the wagon, right? Or like sometimes you decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to get into a new rhythm of life. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to spend my time with God. My morning's going to be less chaotic. I'm just going to make sure I start my day the right way. And like, you know, the second day you start that, you're like feeling good. Like this schedule's awesome, right? And then you have a four-year-old who gets a cold, who crawls in your bed and sleeps sideways, kicking you in the kidneys all night long. And then you never go back to the habit because that's all it takes is one night and you're done. And I think sometimes Satan knows that all he has to do to keep us from living scent is to create just a little bit of doubt in your mind. You don't know the right words to say. That person's going to be really offended. They're not going to like you anymore. They're going to think you're weird. And suddenly people who have the greatest, most important message in the history of the world get talked out of showing and sharing that message by a little thing like our ego could get hurt. That just doesn't make sense, does it? When you're here, Tuesday morning, it's like, golly, I can't imagine like actually having that discussion with somebody. That's all he has to do. And I think what Jesus is praying for here is this, that the people who have the greatest message in the world would be bold enough and protected enough from what Satan tells them that they would carry this message forward. Paul says it this way, that we are to take every single thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. So in that moment this week, when you begin to take that step to live sent, you're going to have to take a risk because in your mind, there is going to be something telling you a hundred reasons. And they're so petty and they're so little, but there's a hundred of them of why you shouldn't. You just need to know in that moment, that thought, that thought is not coming from Jesus right? That thought is not coming from God. We're taking it captive. So here's the challenge for this week. Application for this week. Find one risk and take it. Find one thing that you know, I, in order to show and share Jesus at my job or in my house, I need to do something that I'm scared to death to do or that I don't want to do. And I want you to take that risk. Hey kids, you can do this too. I want to tell you about a third grader named John. John was in third grade class. You know, he, um, he was African-American kid, and he went to a school that was mainly white, so he looked different than most of the kids in his class. John also had um, autism, and he was in a class um, where no other kids had autism. And so there were just not a lot of people like John in his class. But there was one kid in that class who decided, hey, every time we pair up, I'm going to go pair up with John. If I see John sit by himself at lunch, I'm going to invite John to sit with us and me and my friends, right? This little risk of like, hey, I'm going to leave my friends. I'm going to go kind of connect with this kid named John. The teacher in that class said after just a little bit of time of one kid taking one risk and reaching out to John, the whole dynamic of their class changed. You guys can do that. You can take the risk. We live sent when? We live united. We live sent when we live protected. Third thing, we live sent when we live filled with joy. We live sent when we live filled with joy. Now, let me just pause for a second, okay? I'm not talking about happiness right now. Can we all kind of say like we think there's a difference between joy and happiness, right? Happiness comes and goes. Like you have a really good day that makes you happy. 
You get, your husband brings you flowers. That makes you happy, right? That is not the same thing as joy. Joy is there all the time. Even when I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, even when I'm going through difficult circumstances, I can have joy even though I might have happiness. And what I believe is that Jesus was the most joy-filled person who ever lived. And his prayer for us in John chapter 17, verse 13 is this. I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says that God anointed Jesus with joy above all other creation. And what he's asking for us is that joy that he has would be full in our lives. And so I want to encourage you to live your life based on joy. Pope Francis put it this way. We evangelize not with grand words or complicated concepts, but with the joy of the gospel, which fills the hearts and lives of all who encounter Jesus. Joy has an amazingly attractive quality to it. I believe that your neighbors and my neighbors and our friends, they know the difference between people who live from one happy moment to the next and people who live with an abiding sense of joy every day in their life. But it's easy to kind of get detached from that in life, right? When, when job stuff gets hard, when family stuff gets hard, when we're down in the muck and just the yuck of life and bad things happen in our life, it can be a real challenge to live connected to joy. So here's your assignment for this week on this one. I, I want you to find one thing. One, we'll call it an anchor. One thing that you can look at, remember, read, whatever. I want you to find one thing that kind of brings you back to the fact that we can have joy in all circumstances because we have the joy of Christ in us. I'll give you an example of something small, and I'm not going to lie, it's a little bit cheesy, but hey, I'm doing it, so feel free to make fun of me if you want, right? Um, This past week, my grandpa passed away. And um, we were there yesterday at the funeral. And like, that's not a happy time, right? That's a sad time. You're thinking about, um, he was a great man who we all really loved. And um, my whole life, my grandpa carried a pocket knife in his pocket, like every day. And I, it was always embarrassing if I was ever at a point where I was with my grandpa and we needed a pocket knife and I didn't have one. And he would just look at me like, I'm a total failure. Like, what have I taught you? <laughs> right? And so I actually found at my house this old-timer pocket knife that looks just like the one my grandpa used to carry. It's the old-timer. How many grandpas carried an old-timer pocket knife? Yes. Every, I had like 10 guys after first service like, my grandpa carried that same knife, right? Like when you become a grandpa, you get this, and they give it to you, and you just carry it. And I've been carrying that pocket knife with me, not just to remember my grandpa, more than that, but just to remind me that in the middle of a time of kind of, of sadness, that there is something to be thankful for. My grandpa, his influence on my life, like you can find joy in that. So find your own old-timer pocket knife this week. It might be a note that your spouse wrote you. It might be a picture, but just something you say, hey, right now in my life, I need to remember this because when I live filled with joy, that is living scent because it actually attracts people. We live sent when we're united. We live sent when we're protected. We live sent when we're filled with joy. Here's a tough one. We can't live sent unless we live changed. We can't live sent unless we live changed. Different. 
verse 14. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in your truth, your word of truth. Your word is truth. Look here. Jesus' primary plan for you and I living sent is our lives. His primary plan is that our lives would look the exact opposite of the world around us. He uses this word, sanctify them. That word means to set apart for a sacred purpose or a special purpose to consecrate, to to purify. He's thinking about like the dishes that you put away in the special place and they only come out like when company's coming over, like when it's Thanksgiving, like those are special dishes. You don't use those on Tuesday night when you're eating pizza from Walmart. You save those for another time. And he's thinking about our lives being called out, separated, set aside, not, not out of the pantry, but that we are set aside and we are different than everything around us, that we live differently. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a massive portion of the New Testament, including the book of Romans, which we studied, which is the most in-depth theological writing like ever undertaken by humanity, he said this of how, of how he came to people when he was taking the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, he said, My message and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Basically, here's what he said. I didn't come to you with a bunch of big words and arguments. I came to you living it out every day. I lived differently among you. So, I want you to write this down. Here's kind of a, like a life principle for you. This is, there's not a slide for this. You got to do this on your own, okay? Why is easier than what? Why is easier than what? And here's what I mean by that. Answering questions about why you live the way you live is a lot easier than trying to tell people to believe what you believe. Answering questions about why you live the way you live is a lot easier than, than trying to tell people to believe what you believe. Jesus told his disciples, he, he thought they were going to live so differently. In verse 14, he said, the world hated them. And I just wonder if your life is like mine, there's not enough why questions being asked of me. Am I living differently enough? Am I living with enough personal character and integrity? Am I living with enough values that are different, not pursuing the same temporary things that people around me, but a different set of values? Am I living with enough love and grace in a world of judgment? Am I living differently enough? Am I consuming media that is different enough from the world that people would stop me at some point and say, why do you do that? Because that's the primary plan is that we live sent when we live changed. Last thing. We'll live sent when we love eternity more than this world. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I might be a little tender at this one because I I did just leave my grandpa's funeral, so if I totally lose my mind here, um, give me some patience. But look at what Jesus says at the end of this prayer. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, 
so that they might see my glory which you've given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. I've had this outline done for a month or so. Um, I didn't know that last Sunday when we pulled in to the parking lot to come to church, I would get a phone call that my grandpa had passed away and I would be at a funeral yesterday. Um, and as we sat at that graveside, um, and there's just such a finality to that thing. In addition to just being thankful for my grandpa's life, I, I just had a couple of thoughts that I think are relevant to this. And that is, um, first of all, life is really, really short. Life is really short. The Bible says in the Old Testament that our life is a vapor. It's like a, a little thing of steam. It's here for just a second and then it's gone. And I know that a lot of you are in the middle of career and life and family life. We are too. And sometimes, man, it feels like this week is never going to end. Like I get there on Thursday. I'm like, I can't believe this is still the same week as I started on Monday. And sometimes the days feel really long, but I just, can we step back from it all for a minute and just recognize you only have a little bit of time. We only have a little bit of time. The second thing that I realized at that graveside yesterday was that about 98% of what I spent my time on this last week, nobody will give a rip about when it's my turn to be right there. Nobody from the company is going to be at the graveside talking about how well I did hitting quarters and months. No one's going to be there talking about what kind of car. Nobody mentioned what kind of car my grandpa drove yesterday. Nobody said that. Nobody talked about the size of his house. Nobody cared at all about any of that. And how much time do we spend each week talking about, thinking about, worrying about, working about all those things? What Jesus, the end of this prayer for him is that you and I, with him in eternity, seeing the beauty fully of who he is. And I just think, don't let the pursuits of today. Don't love what we have here today, the pursuit of stuff in the moment. Be a bigger deal in your life than the pursuit of that. Don't be too satisfied here. Long for, love the idea of eternity. Care about eternity as much more than you care about the everyday mundane stuff that we spend most of our time chasing. Because that's what Jesus prayed for you. He prayed that you, in the end, you would be with him to see his glory. All right, here's your assignment for this one, okay? This week, I'd encourage you to find one minute, find one minute, 60 seconds every day, and ask God, God, will you give me an eternal perspective? Let me see what is really important, and let me see what's not and pray that that would impact your life. That's what Jesus prayed for his disciples. On the way to the cross, he's praying for them to be sent. He's praying that they would be united. He's praying that they would be protected. He's praying that they would be filled with joy, that they would be changed, and that they would be focused on eternity. By the way, you know what Jesus is doing like right this moment? You ever think about that? Like, hey, what's Jesus up to right now? I'd say what he's doing. The book of Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says this, that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. What Jesus is doing is still praying for you to be sent.
That's what he's doing right now. And I think as we kind of bring this series to a little bit of a close, I think that the lesson is this, that in life, kind of the current, the river of God in your life is just flowing in this direction of sending you and sending me. And the question for us really is, am I going to just kind of go with the current or am I going to try to swim upstream and do something else? And I think if we would just give ourselves over to what he's praying for us and the circumstances and the the moments of our life where he's just pushing us to be sent, then we really wouldn't have so much of a challenge as living sent. And so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads and just in a quiet moment before we sing, maybe kind of settle some stuff in your mind about what living sent means for you. And maybe you're like me, and for a lot of these weeks, I'm like, man, God, living sin sounds like such a good idea on Sunday, and I just don't know what to do on Monday. I've given you some stuff to do to help kind of get you moving, enable your living sentness today. And let me just pray for all of us. God, would you make us a united community of people living sent every day? You sent us. There's a weight to that. There's a responsibility to that that I pray would be heavy on us. And Father, I thank you that at the end of this, we will see you, we will enjoy you for all of eternity. Sharon, we pray. Amen.